You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you, Caleb, for uh, leading us so well. Thank you, worship team. Uh, Good to see you today. Welcome to our second Sunday here at 565 um, Colin McKinney Parkway. A couple of things real quickly. Uh, I think you know this. I'm not the the pastor that likes to to make a big, bold pastoral proclamations, uh, but I just want to add maybe a little pastoral perspective and uh, uh, a challenge to each of us. Uh, This building uh, is something that God has entrusted to us, and it's a stewardship. Uh, We are leaving a building that served this church for over 100 years, okay? So um, God has entrusted us with this new space, and so uh, that means all of us have to do our part uh, to take good care of it, Uh, and I want us to all do that together. Uh, I know that you're aware that there are still some things that are being worked on. If you see little pieces of blue tape in a few places, uh, resist the urge to rip them off the wall or whatever. Uh, Those are things that are on a punch list and are are being taken care of. In fact, uh, the shades... Uh, are scheduled for installation tomorrow on this wall over here. So you guys that are follically challenged over there today, uh, you won't have to worry about your head getting sunburned uh, next week. Uh, But uh, hopefully we'll get those in place. Uh, I know that some of you, when you first came into this space, especially some of you moms, you looked up there and you saw the railing on the mezzanine, and all you can envision was little Herkimer climbing on the railing, right? By the way, Herkimer is the fictitious name that I always use when I'm referencing a fictitious kid who doesn't behave very well. And in 35 years of ministry, it served me well. Not one mom has come up to me and said, my son's name is Herkimer. So (laughs) now you watch. One of you will do that to me. Um, Funny story. I I, I told a story one time, and I referenced a fictitious lady named Ethel, thinking no one in the room would be named Ethel, surely. Oh, she was there. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So anyway, Herkimer. Okay, so I can't ever think of a time when we would want anybody climbing on the railing up there. Okay, ever. So senior adults, don't climb on the railing, okay? Nobody. Um, It is good to see some people sitting up there, although some of you teenagers, mamas, have already told me I could call you out, okay? Uh, And I see my own up there this morning too. So, um, yeah, we're just so grateful for this space, and uh, I hope that uh, you find it more and more, you find it more like home, okay? I know it's going to take us a little time. Uh, We're adjusting to new schedules and new traffic flows and all of those sorts of things. Uh, One thing I will mention that we didn't mention last week, and it wasn't such an issue after this service, uh, but it may be helpful. If you do not have to go back and pick up kids, or you do not need to go out and grab another cup of coffee for the road or anything, you can actually exit through these south doors right here. There are sidewalks that will take you all the way around both sides of the building. Uh, If you want to maybe stop off and play at the playground for a few minutes, you're welcome to do that as well. Uh, But both of these doors will get you out. You will not be able to get back in those doors, so... Uh, make sure you've got all your stuff with you or you may have to go around, but you're welcome to use uh, those doors. So well, let's turn in Matthew chapter 16 in our Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter 16. This morning we're going to uh, conclude uh, what I've called a short transition series, uh, looking at the church in this transitionary time of us moving into a new building. And it's like Ecclesiology 101 or even an introduction to Ecclesiology 101. It's a study of the church. And again, I want to assure you uh, that while this beautiful building is essentially complete, the church is still very much under construction. Uh, God is building his church. Uh, Last week, we saw that the church, a great church, is characterized by a great confession 
uh, and by a great communication. And this morning I want us to look at uh, some other characteristics of, of a great church found here in Matthew chapter 16. So I hope that you'll follow along as I read. We're going to pick it up in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine this? Uh, Peter's as impetuous as some of us, right? He pulls the Lord Jesus aside, rebukes him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So again, last week we looked at uh, these two characteristics of a great church. There is this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter articulated that in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And so a church is a gathering of people who confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Lord and Savior. They are devoted to the revelation of God in Scripture. That's the great communication uh, he reveals himself to us through his word as the only source of saving, sanctifying truth. So a great church makes a great confession, builds its life on the great communication. Christ is preached. The word of God is exposited. We want to always expose the word of God to you. That's our goal. That's our desire every time we, we open God's word together. Uh, it is to be explained. That's foundational to a church. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus. But that's not a wildly popular view today. According to a Newsweek survey several years ago, 70% of people who claim to be evangelical Christians, and I know that's a, broad, that's a broad category, but they said they believe that a person can be saved and go to heaven apart from any profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, some other gospel, some other way. In a more recent Barna survey, 50% of so-called evangelical Christians say they do not believe in absolute truth. Which leads then to the belief that the Bible might be true for me, but not necessarily true for you. That there is no absolute truth, which again uh, leads to this, uh, this, this lack of clarity in, in, in what's most important and what, what should drive our decisions and, and what should our view of the, of the world be. So it's clear that there's been this drift away from these two very important things that are absolutely critical to a great church, a biblical church. One is the great confession. The other is the great communication. 
I want us to look at, uh, at three more of these great characteristics today. So the, the, the third one, I guess, would be the church understands the great contrast. The church understands the great contrast. Notice verse number 20. It says, then he strictly charged, charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. When, when it says strictly charged there in the ESV, that, that's strong language. It means he warned in the strongest way possible. And he said to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, at first glance, that's kind of some strange stuff, right? Uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. It seems to be the exact opposite of what you would expect. After all, he's declared that he is the Messiah, having declared that he alone is Lord, having declared that it is through him that the truth uh, revealed about him is found in Scripture. You would assume that Jesus would then say to his disciples, now, you guys go tell everyone you meet that I'm the Christ. You would assume something like the Great Commission here, right? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, spread it far and wide, tell everyone that I'm the Messiah. But instead, the warning here seems to be a strong prohibition. Why is that? Why is that? Well, if you remember back in John chapter 6, we spent uh, most of last year in John's gospel. And in John chapter 6, you find the account of Jesus feeding the multitude, feeding the 5,000 is how we often refer to it, which would likely have been many more than that. It would be 5,000 men plus women and children. So this huge multitude. And what he did is he miraculously multiplied fish and bread and fed a multitude of thousands. And naturally, the people loved that. Because think about it, they spent their life battling for bread, clawing for food. There was no fast food in that day. You made your food daily from scratch, and you had to work very hard for it. And so here, all of a sudden, was free food created on the spot, right? And as a result of this, in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. He got out of there fast. Because he knew what they wanted to do. He escaped the efforts on their part to take him by force and make him an earthly king. They had such a warped view of the Messiah. Their view of the Messiah was that he was going to come and provide military power and overwhelm the hated and despised Roman occupiers of Israel. Their view of the Messiah was that he was going to dispel all Gentile influence. And now their new view of the Messiah was that he was also going to give them free food. Wouldn't that be awesome? What a warped view of the Messiah. This was going to be the ultimate welfare state. They had reduced their messianic expectations to politics, military might, and to physical provision. How fleshly. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ because they had such a warped view of the Messiah. This is the great contrast. One of the most fascinating conversations in the Bible is found later in John's Gospel, John chapter 18, and we'll be looking at that, Lord willing, uh, sometime this year as we launch back into John's Gospel. It's a conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Remember the account there, the, the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate. They wanted him to execute Jesus. The Romans maintained for themselves the power of capital punishment. They didn't allow the Jews to do that. So the Jews didn't want to, certainly wouldn't have wanted to do it in this kind of mob violence setting of that time because there were a lot of people who were very attracted and interested in Jesus. 
Uh, and so you can just imagine what a public relations mess this would be for the religious leaders if they themselves were to execute Jesus. So they wanted the Romans to do it for them. And so Jesus is pushed through this crazy kangaroo court of that day. He's bounced back and forth. And so, and so um, what they do is they, they, they say, what accusation? Your Pilate asked this. He said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they give this, um, they give this non-answer, this evasive response. They said, if, if, if this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. Well, well that's, not what the, that's not what Pilate asked. That's no answer. They, they really didn't have anything they could say because he hadn't done anything wrong. And so Pilate says, well, then you take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death, which tells us what they really wanted ultimately. They wanted Jesus eradicated, Right? So then Pilate brings him in, and in verse 33 of John chapter 18, after they have accused him of being king of the Jews, uh, they, they decided that was the best accusation that they could get to stick to him because they were also thinking it might seem to be a threat to the Romans and to Caesar as a rival king. And so the question was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying that on your own, or did others tell, tell, this, tell you this about me? And Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you up to me. What have you done? And then he said this. This is critical. This is the great contrast right here. Jesus responded to Pilate by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. My kingdom, he's saying, is the kingdom of truth, of hearing the truth, and believing the truth, and embracing the truth, and the, and the truth of salvation, the gospel truth. My kingdom is not of this world. It does not belong to this world. The apostle Paul put it this way. He said that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a kingdom of those who have come to the truth and have been made righteous and had peace with God and its corresponding joy. That's the kingdom of God. My kingdom, Jesus says, has no connection to earthly kingdoms. Don't tell anyone because they will rush in and they, and they will by force, they will take me and try to make me an earthly king. Because they think that I, I can do for them what they think they need and want the most. But frankly, it is irrelevant to the kingdom of salvation what earthly governments do or don't do. I've told you this before, but I'm always amazed during uh, heightened political seasons. We've had some of those lately, right? Yeah. I'm always amazed when, when certain politicians don't get elected, how many people come to me and ask me, do you think Jesus is about to come back? As if somehow... Jesus is watching American politics, and he's like, well, didn't see that guy get in the White House. Better saddle up the white horse. Here we go, right? Like, no, that's not how this works, y'all, okay? You know, in fact, if you were to ask me when I think Jesus is coming back, I'll probably say something like, well, maybe today. Maybe today. And it doesn't have anything to do with how amazing or crazy American politics is. That's the point Jesus is making. That's the great contrast here. His kingdom is not of this world. I, it amazes me how much time and money and energy professing Christians and some churches will spend trying to manipulate the kingdom of darkness. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be involved. 
I'm not suggesting for sure that we shouldn't vote or, or try to, certainly we need places and people in places of influence and all of those things. It's critically important, but that's not what the kingdom of God is all about. I think there are a lot of Christians out there who, if Jesus were to come, their ultimate goal would be to see him become president of the United States. I think they would lobby like crazy to see him become a candidate for president. And that, if Jesus could just be president, then everything would be great. The great contrast of the church is the true light of the kingdom of God against the darkness of the kingdoms of this world. And a great church understands the great contrast. The great contrast. Here's a fourth characteristic. The church is centered on a great conquest. Verse number 21. See, a true church is centered on the great conquest. That is the great triumph of Christ on the cross. It's not about us winning cultural wars. I mean, I, I rejoice at uh, when there's legislation that I want to see passed and that I believe is in line with Scripture and all those things. I, all that's important. All those things are important. But the great triumph of the church is Christ on the cross. The cross is not something on the wall. No, it's something that dominates the life of the true church. He cannot be our Lord and Savior without the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. I preach Christ and him crucified. We celebrate the cross regularly when we together observe the Lord's Supper, which is serious as we remember the cross, as we go back to the cross, realize that it was there that our sins were paid for. We see the cross laid throughout all of Scripture. The cross cast its shadow backwards over the Old Testament and forward over the New Testament. We can't think of Christianity without the cross because there the justice of God is satisfied. It's there that Jesus Christ bears our sins in his own body. And there, our sins having been paid for, we are redeemed. He was made sin for us that we might become righteous in him. Everything centers on the cross. The cross presents the righteousness of God, the justice of God, but also the love and grace and mercy of God. True church is cross-centered. That's why we like to describe ourselves and are committed to being a church that is biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven. Not only the cross, Jesus said here, he said, and he is going to have to suffer and be killed, but be raised on the third day. Jesus predicts here in Matthew chapter 16, predicts his own resurrection. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God what raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's why we rejoice every Lord's Day when we come together and often we'll sing explicitly, as we did this morning, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a celebration, y'all. We celebrate a risen Savior. That's why we just sing, He is our living hope. He's our living hope. Our hope is not attached to some dead dude in a tomb somewhere. He's our living hope. At the cross, the righteousness of God is manifest. Sin is dealt with. Judgment is provided. On the cross is our substitute. On the cross, our sins imputed to Christ. On the cross, we see mercy and grace and love. Through the cross comes forgiveness. Through the resurrection comes new life. 
new life in Christ. And so we preach Christ and we preach him crucified. We preach the cross. We preach all of the elements of the gospel. And when you preach the cross, you preach the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God. And you preach the justice and the judgment and the grace and the mercy and love. All of these biblical themes all resolve at the cross. At the cross. So if you're looking for a great church, ask if they're committed, convinced, convicted of a great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Lord and Savior, and He alone saves. Are they committed to the great revelation of God in Scripture, the great communication? Do they understand the great contrast that we are not of this world? The only thing that will impact this world for eternity is if it proclaims the great conquest of sin on the cross, which represents both God's righteousness and his love, his judgment and his mercy, his justice and his forgiveness. Church is centered on a great conquest. And finally this morning, a great church embraces a great commitment. If you look at verses 24 through 26, you'll see that if you're going to follow Jesus... It involves you denying yourself. Now, is that countercultural or what? Everything about our culture today says you've got to elevate yourself. Elevate yourself. There, there's whole movements and industries and billions of dollars spent in, in, in all these uh, this self-improvement and self-manifestation, all of these different things. Not all of those things sinful. Okay, I'm not suggesting it's wrong to try to improve your health or, or anything like that. But the focus is on on, on ourselves, elevating ourselves. But the scripture here says you take up your cross and you follow me. That's self-denial. That's self-sacrifice. That's submission. You give up your life. It's an exchange. My life for his. What, What good is it going to do if you hold on to the world and lose your soul? It's better to give up everything and gain your soul and it will cost you, it will cost you everything. That's why the apostle Paul said after his conversion, all those things that I had gained... My huge spiritual resume that would be so impressive to anyone in that day, I count all of that as dung. As dung. Several years ago, Newsweek magazine asked uh, this question of a number of people. They said, do you go to church so that you can feel better about yourself? And a large percentage of people said yes in response to that question. Do you go to church so that you can have a sense of God? So many people said yes. Do you go to church because it gives you a sense of well-being? And while those things may be true, okay, I don't want you to leave here every week feeling like you're just a miserable failure at life and there's no hope. That's, that's not what we're saying. But when you look at some of these responses, you would think that the church was designed to make people feel good. And a lot of church leaders are consumed with such things. They will sit around all day long and strategize better ways to make people feel good. Okay, I don't want you to feel bad, okay, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth as I see it in God's word. And so you'd think that the church was, was, was designed to just make people feel good, to elevate themselves so that they could have a particular kind of feeling of connection with God. And that God, and you know, like God is some big ultimate sugar daddy. Just whatever you want, whatever you dream, whatever you have ambition for, whatever your felt need is, God is here to deliver the goods. That's what we call a prosperity gospel. That's what we call a kind of a name it, claim it gospel. If you want to be able to, uh, what do you, you know, they could assume that God wants you to just be able to create your own world and whatever is on your mind that you can create, he wants to fulfill that for you. 
They picture God as some sort of a doting grandpa who just wants all of us to have more sprinkles on our donuts. But is that really what the church is? It's not the church. It has nothing to do with the church. The church is defined by a great commitment. It's all about self-denial. It's all about giving up your life. It's all about taking up the cross and following him. And it might cost you something. One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture is Psalm 107. In fact, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there for just a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want us to, to, to look at Psalm 107 for a moment. Because Psalm 107 depicts this commitment in very graphic language. The first two verses say this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble. Okay, if you're here this morning and you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, that's you. That describes you. That describes me. Okay, who as an eight-year-old boy, 1974 in Garland, Texas, I saw my need for a Savior. I came to understand from Scripture that I could not save myself. I couldn't become good enough. I couldn't do enough good things to somehow, someway earn God's favor and earn salvation. Couldn't do it. So I had to rely fully upon my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I drew that line in the sand, so to speak, and I, I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So these are the redeemed, and we're going to be giving thanks to God for our redemption. And then he gives us four pictures here in Psalm 107 of this redemption that are absolutely magnificent. You notice the first one is of people lost in the desert in a caravan with no food and no water. It says they wandered in the wilderness of a desert region, couldn't find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry. They were thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. That is, they were ready to die. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distress, led them by a straight way to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, his wonders to the son of men, uh, sons of men, for he satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he filled with what is good. Here is the level of desperation. They don't have an agenda. They're simply destitute, forsaken, lost in the desert, hungry, thirsty, dying. All they can do is cry out to the Lord in their trouble and ask him to deliver them out of their distress. And maybe some of you can identify with that. Your testimony sounds a lot like that. You're wandering in this barren desert of your sinfulness and you were running toward every mirage that came into view. That looks good. If I could just get some of that, I'll satisfy my thirsty soul. And then you get there and you realize it's nothing. It's just a mirage. So you run to another one, another mirage, thinking this will satisfy my thirsty soul. It'll satisfy this craving, this longing that I have deep in my soul. And you find it's nothing. It doesn't satisfy. So this is an amazing picture of salvation itself. So you cry out to the Lord in desperation, not coming with an agenda. No. In utter desperation, I can't save myself. No matter what I try, no matter what I, what I try to do, I, I can't do it. I can't save myself. The second picture is of prisoners. It says, dwelling in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains down in some dark, stinking dungeon. They don't have an agenda either. 
They're, they're there because they rebelled against the words of God, it says. And that's why the, the sinners are where they are. And they spurned the counsel of the Most High. And they've been humbled with labor and, and stumbled. And there's none to help. And there they are in that prison with no one to deliver them, no one to come to their aid, no one to rescue them. And they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses, brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, and shattered their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and his wonders to the sons of men because he shattered the gates of the bronze and he cut the bars of iron asunder. It's just a matter of desperation, nowhere to turn, no agenda. I'm enslaved to my sin. I'm enslaved to my sin. I thought this would help. I thought this would satisfy. All it did was enslave me. All it did was put me in bondage. And I can't break the chains of this bondage. And so in desperation, you cry out to the Lord, who is, as the popular song says, he's a chain breaker. He breaks the chains. One of the most amazing pictures in Scripture of salvation is that we get to trade in our prison garments of sin for robes of righteousness. It's all of God. It's all of God. And then there's more. There's a person with a terminal illness. Somebody who, because of their iniquities, is afflicted with an illness. Their soul has reached the point that they hate all kinds of food. When people get near death, they have no appetite. Here, they draw near to death, and they're so near to death that they can't even eat, and they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and all they want is to be delivered and rescued. And he sends his word, and he heals them and delivers them from the pit or from the destruction of death, and so they thank him. They offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and they tell of his works with joyful singing. These are all pictures of the desperation of the sinner. On the deathbed of our sinfulness. Lost and without hope. Doing everything we can to find enough strength on our own to get up out of that bed and just can't do it. Just can't do it. So we cry out to the Lord. It's the desperation. And then the final one is somebody on a ship on the sea, caught in a massive storm, tossed up and down. The language is very vivid. It says they're melting away in their misery, according to verse 26. They're reeling and staggering like a drunken sailor, as it were. They're at their wit's end. They don't have an agenda. They're desperate. They're desperate. They're at the edge of death. They cry out to the Lord, and he brought them out of their distress, caused the storm to be stilled. The waves hushed. They were glad because now things were, were, were quiet. And he guided them to the desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol them uh, in the congregation of the people and praise him in the seat of the elders. That is the desperation of the sinner. People had no agenda. All they wanted was help. Help. Somebody help. This is the cry of the sinner. And this is the desperation of a true congregation of believers in Jesus Christ. We're just thankful to be delivered out of the desert before we died under the burning sun of our sin, as it were. We're just thankful to be rescued out of the, the prison of our sin. We're thankful that the Lord plucked us up from the deathbed of our sinfulness. Thankful that he settled the storm and led us to the haven because we were going to perish. And a great church, a true biblical church, sees people perishing, sees them on the brink of death and eternal separation from God. And understands that that's what people need because that's what the true church has experienced. That's why we sometimes say, it's just that one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's just one person who was wandering in a barren desert of their sinfulness who found hope and healing and restoration 
and something that would quench their thirst in Jesus Christ. And they're willing to share that good news with other people. A great church embraces a great commitment. Again, that's why we say we're biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven. Because we believe Jesus Christ is the central figure of God's word. And it's all about his finished work at Calvary, the gospel of Jesus Christ itself, that drives us to share the good news of the gospel with the world around us. It's not because we're any better. We're not any better. Now, the only thing special about any of us is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a great church. So if you're looking for a great church, what are you looking for? You're looking for a steeple? Cool architecture? Stained glass windows? A sign? Liturgy? Ritual? Style of music? Good parking? Good kids programming? Good feelings? The Lord of the church here says, I will build my church. I'll build my church. And I'm going to build it on this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is Lord, Messiah, Savior. I'll build it on the scriptures, the great communication of revelation of God himself. It's built on the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God, on the truth of the cross and the resurrection. It's built on holiness and purity and doctrine and practice, on humility and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's built on the anticipation of what is heavenly and what is eternal. That's a great church. That's a great church. Can we bow together in prayer for just a moment? Lord God, there is so much to love about the church. Relationships formed. It's the very act of carrying one another's burdens, doing life together, serving alongside one another. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you've entrusted us, entrusted to us, what you've called us to. Lord, I pray for the one here today who may be wandering in a desert a spiritual desert. They're dry, parched. It's as if spiritually they're dying of thirst. Help them, O oh Lord, to find the living water that is found in Jesus Christ alone. There may be some here today who feel as if they are on a boat, on a rocky sea. They need a haven of rest. Help them to know and understand, O oh Lord, that you alone, your finished work on Calvary, is that haven of rest for our souls. Lord, help us to be known as a great church, not because we have a new building, not because we have great programming, because we serve a great Savior. And we're committed to telling others how great you are. May that be our passion. May that be what drives us each and every day. No agenda on our part. Just us locking arms together and making much of Jesus. Lifting up Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. 
in every way that we can. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.